Hi, I'm John. Hi, I'm Ed. And welcome to PAX, a history podcast about empire. And this week we're going to talk about researching empire. Yeah, we're going to talk about what it, not not so much what it takes, but what you need. In order what you to, need, uh, what's difficult, what's different as well. I mean, one thing that's always different because we work at different ends of the spectrum historically. Yeah, we're a long way away from each other. Um, I mean, we are also physically a long way away from each other, because where are. have you been at this month? Well, this month uh, I've been in Rome. I've been at the British School of Rome doing a, a postgraduate's course all about the topography of the city, the ancient city, starting right from the, the mythical beginnings. Uh, there's not a lot of actual stuff to look at when it when, when you talk about the, the physical beginnings of Rome. And then right the way through to late antiquity. So we're about five weeks in now, and we've moved on from looking at lovely temp- uh, Roman temples to now looking at uh, fourth century churches. So it's a change of scenery and it's not really my period. So I'm finding it really interesting. But I mean, cause you do your, what's your dissertations on ec- the economics, isn't it? It's yeah. Well, so the physicality is quite, it's related in some senses, isn't it? Not the temples, fuck us. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. I, as part of the, uh, the course here, I, I do do a, um, a uh, like an essay project that I have to uh, like a research project that is to do with inclusions of people's professions and work on uh, their tombs specifically by uh, freed people people who have been manumitted from slavery and how they choose to represent themselves uh, on their tombs and obviously that is material culture I have to find these tombs I have to I have to record you know the inscriptions the the art that's been used on the tombs to make some sort of general not generalization but to, to analyze the the trends the artistic trends of of these people and so that does take you know research uh so we thought considering i'm out here at a what is basically a, a research institute um there are some artists here as well but we, we we'll, we'll ignore that, okay. <laughs> <laughs> ignore that um we'll uh we thought yeah we'll talk about researching empire today yeah, because it's, I mean, I'm a, a sort of adjacent to a military historian in many senses. It's sort of the hobby side of my academia. And often they talk about walking the ground. You know, you you write about a battle, you can read everything, but nothing gets you a better idea than walking through the physicality of it. And in many senses, while empire as a concept is so intangible, you can still walk the ground of empire. I mean. You're doing that right now, going through looking at your relate the relationship between ex-slavery and empire. I mean, but we've both done it because we went to Pompeii about five years ago. Yeah. And Pompeii itself, isn't it? Isn't it would you call Pompeii an imperial city or is it? Uh I, I suppose it is. It, it's not in the strictest sense of the word, uh part of the sort of like a province, like like Spain or uh or even Greece would be. It Pompeii existed as a city I think it was a the physicality of Pompeii is representative of what the Roman Empire was at the time in a way that you can learn about what the British Empire was from say a house in 1920 oh yes I I think that's about right but it's a it's a frozen snapshot of empire mm-hmm. because obviously it was buried um, uh, in the during the eruption of Mount Vesuvius it was hit by uh, basically, it was rained on by uh, lots of by pumice, which is these tiny stones, 
and those were basically build up in layers and layers and layers on top of these houses so much so uh, the reason we don't have any of the roofs that survive in Pompeii is because the pumice collapses all the roofs uh, and then the city got hit by pyroclastic flow as well yeah so it sort of freezes it uh, in place but that also means that we have a, an excellent snapshot of uh, what the Roman Empire looked like in 79 AD during the uh, the reign of Emperor Titus. He was only in charge for about two years. It does reveal actually a massive amount. So we see the material culture, we see uh, how people like to arrange their homes. There's a study that just came out uh, a couple months ago, which basically uh, studied each individual house and tried to work out you know, the average sort of square footage of the uh, the size of the houses of all these different parts of the Pompeian social strata. And it was a really, uh, really remarkable um, place. I would also say that what, what has come up a lot on my course is that the best way to see um, empire, especially in the city of Rome, is in the building materials uh, used. So what you have, you start off um, when Rome is just a, a fledgling city, a fledgling kingdom, is a lot of the building materials are, are, are with a volcanic rock called tufa. And tufa is, you know, it's found in, you know, in the seven hills of Rome. So they are quarrying locally and building local structures. And then as they vaguely sort of expand their tendrils of control, you know, they take over nearby settlements like Tivoli and Vey, um, you get different things coming in so travertine is sort of like a very white limestone it looks like marble you look at it and you think it's marble but it's not it's it's uh it's a white limestone and so that is being used to to build some of the earliest temples um in the city of rome and then eventually marble does come in sort of lunar marble uh, which is found in italy um but also different kinds of uh marble sort of uh trying to sort of porphyry and um, Phrygian marble and African granites and, and all sorts. The Basically, as the empire expands, the building materials uh, expand with it. And so the city of Rome, you can really see when new bits of the empire are being added on based on what building materials are being used uh, in temples and uh, other big monuments. I mean, that's a, such a brilliant over way to understand the growth and the relation between metropole and empire because that's exactly evoked in London. I mean, we're both Londoners. You look at buildings in London and towards the end, of the, by the end of the beginning of the 20th century, you've got buildings with, you know, Portland stone, Canadian oak, African metals and diamonds. It's just every, everything is from around the world. There's, there's a direct connection as well with um, obsession of the sort of the, the center of empire and having an Egyptian needle in, in there yes. as well. So Rome has <laughs> well, like a at least seven Egyptian needles um, basically brought by various uh, Roman emperors. When they, you know, add a bit of a uh, bit of Egypt to the empire, they'll bring a needle back as well. And obviously Those that's good. the same in, in London. You could do a whole paper on the imperial nature of Cleopatra's needle on the Strand, because it's an Egyptian needle made, named after a Greek conquering monarch, mm. probably stolen by the Romans first, and then moved to London, and then had bombed with French aid, <laughs> and then bombed by the Germans. <laughs> it's this one big, that's the imperialism of the world, and one, it just, it, and, oh. it's got, and if you want modern imperialism, it's being damaged by air pollution. 
Oh wow, we've gone. It's, it's crumbling. It's away. What's interesting there is that that is a tangible form of research in terms of it, which is from every pub discussion we've had for the last four, four years, something you don't get to do a lot. No, it's not. It's and it's something I've not been very aware of. You know, with my time at university, building materials haven't really come up very often, except for you know, knowing that if it's made of brick, it it probably was built in the second century AD, and if it's a public sort of big monument, it's probably made of marble. But it, it really is. It, it's interesting that the politics of building materials um and building materials also carry more important functions so uh, they can carry inscriptions and names on them and these inscriptions and names can tell us a lot about uh, individuals you know who built these buildings yeah you know, who, who is what is this building's purpose who's it for what's it dedicated to um so there are some really obvious ones so in the in the roman forum there's a building uh, we've lost most of the temple but we still have the the front pediment and it says like this is for the divine antoninus pius and the divine faustina is his wife uh so we know oh this is the temple of uh antoninus pius and faustina that's that's easy um but sometimes they do uh catch you out and um, i think the, the the pantheon is a really good example of this so we went to the pantheon about five years ago as well i think do we we sort of had a look at the front Ooh. No, we just went. We didn't go in because our friend bought a a Pope tw a twelve month calendar of Pope oh, Francis for his oh, girlfriend. My God, excellent! They're still selling those. Just still, about. Just about. <laughs> Hopefully, different um, years. Yes, exactly. So yeah, so the, the Pantheon does have an inscription on the front, uh, quite famously, and the, the inscription says M Agrippa, L F Cos Tertium Fecit. So to expand the abbreviations, it's Marcus Agrippa, Lucius uh, Filius, uh, I think it's Cosium, Cosum, Tertium Fecit, which translates as Marcus Agrippa, son of Lucius, consul for the third time, uh, built this. So that, you'd imagine, is a very helpful inscription because we can use that to date the building. We know who built it. We know that Marcus Agrippa was very invested in rebuilding now, the uh, the campus Martius, which is the part of Rome that the the, the Pantheon is from. Hello. Did, he, did they steal the front of the building off of another building? Well, you see, <laughs> this is because <laughs> that's something the Romans would do. That is, uh, we will we'll, I'll talk about that later. It's a, that that is a um, it, it, that that is a phenomenon known like as spolia. So that would be that would be turning it into spolia. He has a it but has a name. It has a name. Well, every like fourth or fifth century church is full of these columns and you're like where, where do you get all these columns from they're like found them found them you know found them the back of a lorry yeah <laughs> <laughs> they're actually here when we got when we built the church already um and so this was generally believed i think it was um maybe even edward gibbon believed it ancient even ancient sources i think it's um cassius dio who is writing to be fair a, a few centuries later he says Oh, you know, the Pantheon and the Campus Martius, definitely built by Agrippa, says it on the front, Bosch, no problem. But if you actually look at the, the building that's there today, and then you read the ancient sources of people who are more contemporary to the building of the Pantheon, it was built by Marcus Agrippa, so late first century BC. Uh, so you have someone like Dionysus of Halicarnassus walking around, or, or someone else like Varro. The description they give of the building 
is very different to the one that stands today. They don't and talk so about the round bit. <laughs> you, well, they, they, it looks sort of the same, but it's like the, the the way they describe it. It's like okay, this this doesn't this isn't here. This is something else. And so there's some digging, and um, it seems that the the original Pantheon built by Agrippa burned down, probably during the probably during the fire of Nero in 64 AD, probably burnt down, and then it was rebuilt. We know very little about the second phase. Uh, and then that burnt down. <laughs> and the one that still stands today is the one built during the reign of Hadrian. So in sort of the, the mid second century AD. Um, and for whatever reason, they thought, let's just put the original inscription back on it. You know, let's do that. Let's just put the original inscription back. It's Roman nimbyism. Kind of. It's like, like, okay, no one, we don't. Someone's like, no, this is what the original temple said. We wanted to say that. And it's like, it's, it's a new temple. So like, no, but we have to keep the we have to keep the local area authentic. <laughs> the planning regulations say so. <laughs> but that's the danger of, of using an inscription on its own. So you, you have to be very careful when researching these buildings. That yes, these inscriptions are really helpful, but they aren't the the sort of the be-all and end all. Um and the, the pantheon is like prime example of this and it's that interesting part of historical research is basically you get to you sort of get inklings of it in when you do history in secondary schools like oh people do this they do it for this reason and they tell half truths and what does it really mean you get to university and the first thing you do that happens is you get sat down and told that everybody's a fucking liar <laughs> but no no what you have to do is verify why they have lied to you and then possibly what the truth is and what's interesting is you've got to do it with a very small set of resources, which both makes it very easy and very hard. Whereas at the other end, when I'm writing about colonial Africa or the colonial West Indies in the 30s, there's so, so much I have to deal with. Yes, it's it's more of a case of what do you include as opposed to being sort of scrambling around for extra things like, oh, what could possibly be relevant to this? And the one thing that, especially modern empires, you know, I suppose the Romans must have done, but just didn't survive history. So they keep records. Empires keep huge amounts of paper records of everything because they want to know what they've got and they're desperate to know what they've got. They're desperate to make sure they can control it all. I was just going to say that the, the Roman Empire did keep records, but uh, you know, there's a theme here. Um, a lot of them gets destroyed by fire. Um, <laughs> I think it's... Um, <laughs> They 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 try to build all these fireproof buildings. The um, the the imperial forums like uh, the Forum of Augustus and the Temple of Peace and things like that. They have these colossal, like I mean, huge walls of pepperino, which is this really dense stone. They're like these massive enclosure walls uh, around these forums, basically as fire breaks to stop fire getting in. And the Temple of Peace burns down in one nine three A.D. Like it doesn't work. They all burn down. Galen talks about the the fire. He says because he he he's a doctor. He has all his all his medical. I was about to say medical records. Not in like the modern sense of the word. He's not like logging everything, but he's got sort of all his recipes for his um his potions and and all, all the writing he does about about medicine. He puts them. He's like, I'm going to put this in the safest place I possibly can. I'm going to put it in the library in the the Temple of Peace, or I'm going to put it on the uh, the via sacra in these 
supposedly fireproof brick vaults underground. <laughs> they they burn. Or on the Palatine Hill in the in the Imperial Palace. Whoops, it's burnt down. It all just burns down. Like so it, record keeping in the ancient world is very difficult, but it's difficult because everything just catches fire apparently. You know what they should have done? They should have baked in a wax tablet. Wax tablets don't burn down. No, they don't. They just That's why we away. know so much about like the Fasciniums and shit. They just put in like wax tablet, done, sorted. Wax wax tablets would though uh in a fire, they'd just melt. Oh shit, yeah. Oh, oh fuck. See, this is even I then again, modern modern record keeping does not survive fires. It's just like no. you know the frequency of fire is down. Lower, yeah. Lower, yeah. Lower. What is higher? It's the frequency of people destroying their own records. On purpose. On purpose, because so in my third year at Edinburgh, I did a paper on the Kenyan emergency, sometimes called the Mau Mau Rebellion or the Mau Mau Rising or the Kenyan War of Independence, depending on how you want to phrase it. Yep. Research into that period of Kenyan history is constrained by three main factors. One, the British government's destruction of records. Two, the British government's active gaslighting about what records exist or what records don't mm-hmm. and three the general hesitancy for a long time of the Kenyan popular of Kenya to talk about it and the first two are a strong and important facet of modern imperialism because a good important part of modern empires is they know what they do is kind of bad so they don't want you to talk about it. they'll keep the records mm-hmm. but they don't want you to know about it yeah they won't tell you where they are you know, the Romans put edifice, put um, you know, inscriptions and carvings of them sacking Jerusalem and carting off the population of slaves onto the side of a monument because they, they want you to know they did that. Absolutely. Where the British colonial government doesn't want you to know the extent to which it enforces committed brutalities against the population of Kenya. So, you know, at the end of independent, at the end of empire, a great deal of records that would be vital to the historian, even on things like talking about the Second World War and social issues, were just burned because they didn't want any of the records to come out because it would have reflected badly on Britain. And, it, you know, it, it lends to the arguments around, you know, the, the, the positives and negatives of colonialism because, well, they destroyed all the bad shit. Oh, so when you come away and, and someone tries to write the history book on this period, they're presented with big blank holes, a, a big, big blank holes. And so you sort of assume it's filled with terrible things, really. You assume but it's filled right. with terrible things. Or if you're being more disingenuous, you can assume it's filled. There's nothing there. Mm. You've got to consider, for example, that I mean, an obvious example is that we because of the holes in the historiography, until the late 60s, early 70s, people have seen the Nazis were quite efficient because there was nothing to say otherwise. Mm. And then Albert Schmier inside the Third Reich, and it sort of busted open this massive, like, historiography of, oh, these guys were actually really horrifically incompetent, weren't they? And they're all at each other's loggerheads. It's like, they don't agree with each other at all. But we only found that because Albert Schmier basically went, no, no, this is what it was like. Yeah, no one else was talking about it because they they killed themselves and they'd been killed. They didn't want to, and they all ended up in a bunker together with all their documents. So, like, I guess we'll just burn all these. Yeah, or you have the other one, of course, which is classified documents. Which is, if documents aren't 
revealed, they leave holes. Mm. Yeah, we didn't know about Enigma till the 70s, and it made writing some histories of the Second World War a bit difficult because you don't know where pieces of information came from. It's probably similar about trying to write histories of Russia before 1991. Yeah, well, even now it's difficult because there's only like an eight or nine year period where you're allowed into the Russian archives and then they close them back down again. You know, one of the great advantages of living in a Western democracy is that I, an undergraduate student, could go and look up British government records. And I did. Mm. And I went to the National Archives on three occasions and pulled out 33 different primary sources and manuscripts from the colonial office and the cabinet office on That's Trinidad. Cool. That's cool. And I got to hold documents written by the governor and by the colonial secretary and by very... And it's little things like this. You begin to understand the intricacies and quirks of empire and what's important to them. For example, it's not in my dissertation, but I've had a, a memo war between the Royal Navy and the colonial office over who's paying the expenses of the naval garrison. Because the colonial office is like, well, you're the Navy, you pay it. And the <laughs> Navy is like, well, you made us come to Trinidad and told us to stay longer than we, you said we'd have to. So, so you're you pay it. <laughs> and there's this long argument until eventually I think the Navy disagrees to stump up for it so they can send their guys home. Hmm. And then there's another memo war about who's paying for the hotel bills. See, I, I, love, I love how genuine it is as well, because um, we do get a little bit of ancient correspondence, um, but we sort of get two types. So we have the, the letters of Cicero, um, and Cicero was uh, briefly a, um, so he was a, a consul in 63 BC. And after you're a consul, you, you get to be a proconsul, which means you go and govern a province for, a couple of years he went off to go govern his province i think it was cilicia or something it uh, which is, is in southern turkey i think it's there and he writes all these letters to his friend um atticus and they do survive and they're pretty eclectic you, you can tell they're genuine because the amount of information they contain is pretty frustratingly small he sort of assumes his friend atticus you know you know this so i'll just talk about this and this this and you you, you know you have all the context to to put together what you know my daily life as the consul uh, as the proconsul of this of this province is like whereas the only other real example i can think of is um, Pliny the younger Pliny the younger um publishes his letters called the epistles uh, and he is also a governor he governs um the imperial province of uh, bithynia um which is sort of in northern Turkey, sort of around where Istanbul is, that sort of area. On the <coughs> on the east side, where all the on the um, on the top side, sort of the north side. The Greek colonies were. Yeah, so uh, <coughs> there, there was a kingdom of Bithynia in there, and then yeah. it gets got subsumed into the uh, the Roman Empire after I think during the reign of, well, during sort of around the the end of the the Republic. So things have changed, obviously, since Cicero. The Republic is gone. There's an emperor now. And so he is in an imperial province. So he has been appointed by the emperor to govern this place for a few years. And, you know, he has correspondence with the emperor, with Trajan. And he he wants to publish this because it looks good for him that he's got this great positive relationship with Trajan. Um, and it sort of papers over the fact that he also had a pretty chummy relationship with uh, Domitian, who everyone hated and was a bit tyrannical. Um, but it reveals a little bit about the day-to-day life of running being the governor of a province it's similar things so he says this local town in bithynia 
has spunked all its money trying to build an aqueduct and then has complete just like got halfway through and ran out of money like what should i do and then he says oh you know tell them to restructure the way they tax themselves and then give them some extra money or he says that in oh you know in the workforce of this other town we found some prisoners that were supposed to be serving um a punishment for a crime they committed but instead of doing that what they've done is they've turned themselves into public slaves and now they're following the public slaves around and like onto construction sites and things what should i do trajan and trajan comes in and says well you should take them out and and you know put them to death or something like that and everyone's like oh thanks trajan it's so great trajan yeah it's pretty clear that these letters are incredibly edited <laughs> because they're, they're like oh Trajan oh can I do this oh, can Trajan, I do this can I do that you're so like, great oh, oh you Pliny oh what do you like <laughs> yeah sure go ahead but that's that's sort of the only real source and these were taken as genuine so these were this sort of built up this image of the um this was a a, a popular argument I can't remember his name is Fergus Fergus Miller put forward this argument he wrote a book about the um the, the emperor and he said that, well, you know, the emperor is the state in a sense. You know, what he says goes, you know, we look at Pliny. Pliny's talking to the emperor. The emperor is telling him what to do. So that just feels. Therefore, the emperor has a, a sort of a policy which he's trying to promote, and that the emperor is governing the empire through his sort of imperial legates, the governors. But it's it's it is coming from from him. So therefore, that feels so unrealistic. Ascribe though. policy to it. Yeah, it's just like a <clears throat> it's a lot for one man to do. Especially yeah, communication times are so long. It doesn't exactly. It, it doesn't. It doesn't make very much sense. And I think and it's yeah. much more obvious that you know Pliny. Pliny's letters are complete outliers in the um, in the sources. We don't have other uh, like edited volumes of letters. So it's just it's pretty clear that this guy just has a personal relationship with the emperor, and he wants to basically publicize it. <laughs> And be like, hey guys, look what I'm doing. Because it's that's one of the things that came from my dissertation is this question of <clears throat> autonomy in the West Indies. And I think looking at the papers, it's quite clear, for example, that the, col the, the colonial governors are a lot more independent than you think, but a lot less independent than they think. So what's great is I don't have to, I can look at, for example, the actions of the governor of Trinidad in 1937-38, Madison Fletcher, and how he tries to placate the strikes and rioters, and how he basically takes a lot of purview to make certain statements and to admit the failures of the British government, but that gets in the sack. But his orders to do, he, he does that on his own grounds. He gets the sack because it, in, because it interferes with policy at home. But I think that's the interesting is you can, I know that's why, because I've read the policy document given to the, the Minister of State, Secretary of State for the, for the colonies. I've, I've read the dossier that the civil servants wrote up for him to basically say he's got to go because mm. he can't hack it. And I could go through and those documents can reference other documents and I can read those documents and see, oh, they have, they have selectively drawn certain yes. conclusions you know, there's um, there's a bit where they basically cite another document, a letter from the oil companies to no, they cite what is it? No, they cite a the minutes of a meeting between the oil companies and the governor, where the oil company basically it looks like he's 
basically not trying to say that he will do the oil companies in if they don't do what he says. But you go and read the actual thing. He's What he's really saying is, I can't afford to let you guys maintain your authoritarian policies towards workers and trade unions because it's a threat to the security of the island. Mm. It, is in, it is a threat to public order because as long as you do this, they will continue to riot. And the oil companies just don't like that. Yeah. And you can follow the secondary historiography to know that the reason the oil companies do dob them in is that they've got mates in London. And Murchison Fletcher doesn't. And you can see that, you can just see that track of them calling through the back offices back to the fact that in September, the government, in July, the government seems reasonably confident in him. But by November, it's like, no, you've got to go. He's got to go. Wow. It's just so much info. It's so much more information that I'm used to. Yeah, I mean, it's so much. This is this sort of comes back. It's so much information. I remember sitting with it all, reading it, and you realize that not all of it is that useful. You have to be really specific because there's just so much to empire. You know, you know. I read the whole commission report on Trinidad and Tobago disturbances. 150 pages. There's a whole discussion in there on the relationship in the on like social relationships in the in like textile industry it's like it's deeply irrelevant but it tells you so much about the relationship of empire because it's about social tensions between the black population and the indian population and the fact textile industry the cottage industry mainly run by richer indians and some whites it's like relationship in the like social relationships in the like textile industry it's like it's deeply irrelevant but it tells you so much about the relationship of empire because it's about social tensions between the black population and the indian population and the fact textiles through the cottage industry mainly run by richer Indians and some whites. And it's like, and that's imperial, but it's also not relevant to what I'm writing. And that's sort of one of the struggles of empire is that when you access the archives, there's, there is just so much, or there's nothing. Yeah. Or there's a couple of things that are mentioning another thing and just don't come up. And you have to sort of scramble around looking because you'll follow a paper trail and then it will just disappear. Yeah. So and compared to, to you, I'm privileged to have a paper trail, but it still disappears. And I, I suppose the scale of information that you have on, say, something rather um, mundane going on on these um, on these islands, sort of speaks to oh god, how much has been lost when they decided to to burn these particular documents. Or how much has just not been properly archived? You know, I'd really love to have an archivist on here to talk about this because mm. so archivists are the backbone of what we do and what they are and how they archive and the course of the archive and the level of access we have changes it. Because for example, um, you know, the book, the the whole Mau Mau thing in British historiography is Caroline Eakins Imperial Reckoning. The Untold Story of Britain's Gulag in Kenya, which is a book with some complications. It is a book that is built around the incredibly successful use of primary evidence to talk about the detention camps in Kenya and the, uh, the, the horrible mass detent- treatment of mass detainees. And essentially the fact that there's a lot of guys who are running <clears throat> those detention camps who should not have been allowed to do that, but the British government doesn't care. And just having to let people suffer and just covers it up. And she was able to do that because she found the archives. 
Very simply, she knew where to look for them and she found them and she did the work. Was she the first person to properly synthesize all this? That's a debate in many ways. Okay. You know, there are some people who argue that Elkins this sort of was like, I'm going to write about this because it's in front of me. And I'm going to talk about it like I'm the first person. I think Elkins is important because it sort of, as I said, it busted open the discussion. You know, people, Kenyans who had been tortured by the British government got at a formal report, got apologies and recompensation from Muammar detainees against the British government. But it's difficult to work out, um, you know, it's like, is, did she bust it open? I mean, she, she built it on the historiography of other writers. That's how all history works. No one, no historian has ever written something that has not relied on other person's work. You know, the oldest is, yeah. the, oh, the first historian, Herodotus, spends all this time going, a bloke down the pub told me this. Yeah, or he goes to um, he he has to go to different places. So he says the Greeks have this version of this story, and the Persians have this version of this story, and then he'll tell you both, and then he'll say, "Well, I think it's this one." Yeah, and that is exact. That is, yeah. All historians work on that at heart, and I think when you're researching when Elkin, when you look at something like imperialism especially working with primary source in it becomes difficult because so much of it is heavy and political. Poli well, history is always politicized, especially as empire, modern empire, because how you understand a primary source can be quite political. Is it because um, the empire as a concept is, is something that is, has been moralized about in the last century or two centuries far more than uh, well, like at all in the ancient world, you don't get people moralizing about empire in yeah in Rome. Nor I think yeah, Korean, I mean that uh, moralization about empires. I mean, we could get three or four hours out of if I did some proper research. But that's part of it. Is that you can't, you know, if you want to understand how the moralization of empire, that's what Star Wars. They're just called the Empire, and it's you know, it's all you need to know. You know, ooh, they must be bad. And yeah, you can't get around the fact that. It's hard to talk about empire because it's moralized. But also the people at the time found it difficult to talk about empire because it was moralized. They either had to say it was really good, we promise, or they pretended they didn't have one. So it's hard to... I think it's also a political discomfort that it's easy to talk about Rome as an empire because none of us are claiming... To, no one's claiming to be the heir to Rome now. Well, Putin... Well, yeah. yeah. No, no, one is, no one is claiming to uphold everything Roman. that the Roman Empire did, stood for, or, or, or basically many of its institutions. People, I think, are, are most interested in the Roman Empire um, because it is a sort of the first European empire. Um, and also because so much of what we have today is, is vaguely descended from uh, the Roman Empire, whether that be, you know, the way we conduct laws in sort of the common common law or um legal codes or um, language even yeah language christianity that sort of thing that's why people study the roman empire and also because of the the renaissance people love the roman empire because they but find it's, all documents and it's that detachment that allows you to talk about mm -hmm. it in a way people get quite emotional when you well, they get quite upset when you question the british empire because it's quite personal because it was our grandparents. It's our grandparents and our great-great-grandparents' social realm and 
political decisions. Yeah. And people take that quite personally. But and it means it's difficult to get into researching it without staking a, a political position, which, but then again, you should, because it's within living memory for a lot of people still. Yeah. And it has, con- it has real, still continues to have real world consequences. Well, people are still living the effects of these yeah. colonial empires. Yeah, in, I mean, in a way, quite fundamentally, we, we aren't really for the Roman Empire. Yeah. I mean, you know, columns. What, is the, what are the lasting effects of the Roman Empire in the 21st century? People speak Latin to sound clever. There are columns everywhere. <laughs> roads, are... Are str- roads are straight. Uh, yeah, basically. You know, yes. people like neoclassical architecture. People sometimes quote uh, Greeks and Romans. I like a good pizza. I mean, this is the point, is that if you say, oh, I can research empire apolitically, especially modern empire, you, you, you're lying to yourself. Because mm. you can't. It's sort of like, um, did you hear about uh, the sort of the controversy about presentism? In um... No? So this is a, this was a uh, an article written by the, I think he's, I think he's the former president. I think he's president at the end of the last year by uh, James Sweet, who is the president of the Association of American Historians. Oh, I think you uh, sent this to me. Yeah, and he wrote a um, he wrote a piece about presentism, and he said, "Oh, you know, we need to you know, people people historians today and um, are, are too sort of caught up in asking sort of proposing throwing modern questions into the past and using a very modern lens to talk about the past." And he says that we need to, you know, we need to stop doing this. But his, uh, the real controversy came from the fact that so he's a, he is a historian of, I think, um, the Atlantic slaves trade. And he brought up an example of, um, I can't remember where it was, but it was um, somewhere in West Africa where he was being taken on a tour around uh, these um, areas, uh, probably of, of some historical sites to do with the slave trade. And he was part of a group tour. And um, he said that, oh, everyone else on the tour was African-American. And the tour guide was basically feeding them lies in, in sort of a way. And sort of like the, the way that they were presenting this information about slave trade was not quite correct, but had been changed in order to meet what he viewed as some sort of political agenda. or tr- uh, And obviously he got pretty lambasted for this uh, because mainly the person giving the tour... Uh, was a early career historian um, who he completely chucked under the bus. Uh, and also yeah. the fact that it's pretty clear that he isn't aware of the the importance, whether or not it's constructed or not, that um, these people, the uh, people who are the descendants of enslaved Africans, they need something. They need, when they think about their family history, there is obviously, there's like a cutoff date and it's like, oh, that's the end there. Sorry. Yeah. They need there's this what do they call it? Um social death. Yes. And they 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 hit that wall and they quite rightly aren't satisfied. And so they go to Africa because they want to learn more and connect more with um their family history. And I think, is it the most academically rigorous, you know, thing to do? Maybe not. But is it is it therefore this terrible Dangerous. thing that needs to end or is it like is it going to corrupt history and 
you know, throw the entire discipline um, off the rails. I don't, I don't think so at all. I mean, it all the problem is, is he's he's right, which is that academically, it's quite the you know, um, transnational African heritage discourse is complicated. Mm. You know, social the social death of the Middle Passage is an imperial creation, and it is completely dislocating. You know, if you are, and especially for African-Americans, if you are a white American, you can go on heritage tours of Europe and see the village in Ireland you came from or the town in Scotland you came from. If you're from Joe Biden. Great, you can do that. And I've, you know, having worked in London and Edinburgh and knowing Irish people, it is common. And it's deep for us in England, at least in England, Scotland, it's very odd. Yeah. And it's like, well, it's it's a long time ago. And... I would love to talk to an African-American historian about it, something knows more, but you, I have to wonder whether that desire to go is related to the fact that white Americans can do that and African-Americans can't because of the actions of the dominant society, because of the acts of middle passage. Because I don't know if it's a West Indian trait. I, my mother certainly never showed much interest in going much further back than Trinidad. Hmm. You know, you can do your ancestry.com and it says you're... Nigerian and this and that, but that's sort of the end of this, you know, it's like, okay. You know, I, if I was to go to Nigeria or Ghana, I'd want to go to see Nigerian Ghana now, not to try and find the place where I'm from. It's a, a, I'm from South London. It's, it's, can't get much worse than that. <laughs> but I think it, that's that question of researching empire. I think it's nice to surround out that personal research of empire because when people, especially African-American people, are exploring that. They're exploring a personal relationship with an imperial project. Mm. And that seems uncomfortable and quite upsetting. So I can understand, you know, the comforting lie in history. History is full of comforting lies. I mean, especially pop history and especially tourism history. It it does come up a bit as well in in ancient history that it's because especially being here in, in Italy and Rome, it is full of tourists. Yeah. And um, th- th- there are certain decisions you have to make when you are uncovering an ancient site or reopening a, an ancient building. You have to choose, you have to pick and choose what stays and what goes. Um, I think a really good example of this is the Imperial Forum, because the Imperial Forum used to be houses. It, they, they were medieval buildings just on top that were all tenancy buildings. And then in the 1920s and 30s, Mussolini was like, well, we know the forum's under here. So let's just bulldoze all of them and uh, start excavating and, and, and move all the way through. And obviously build a big road so that he can see the Colosseum from uh, the Palazzo Venezia or, yeah, basically. So he can march his uh, armies up and down that he likes. And what that means is you have to make some decisions as an archaeologist when, you know, you're given this golden ticket of, you know, here's carte blanche, go to town on the Imperial Forum, go to town on the Roman Forum, we want to see what's down there. So that's great. But then you have to make some decisions then. So, and these decisions are um, what what stays and what goes when you start digging, because mm-hmm. a lot of the time what you're hitting are uh, medieval buildings or very early 
very, uh, very, very early medieval buildings, sort of middle so ages. Presumably, buildings. all the excavation makes it quite difficult to know what early medieval Rome was like. Yes. So you are all been dumped making, for spoil heap somewhere by Mussolini. You're making you're making a value judgment, um, which Mussolini would say, oh, quite rightly, uh, to basically ditch all this lovely medieval things that were built not even like that like these are like late antique things as well that get built in these forums so the forum of nerva is a very narrow forum it's got a big temple at the end it's got lots of columns but it's basically it's called the forum transitorum because what it was built was basically built over a road that led into the forum and so it's used as a road mainly people travel through it they don't sort of stop and hang out um and what it means is that in the later life of the city, it was built over with sort of medieval buildings. Um, it became a very important sort of stop and go point uh, of people traveling through the city. And the archeologists uncovered these buildings and demolished them basically, because they want to see the Forum of Nerva. And the you know forums are big open spaces. This is very obvious with the Forum of Augustus, which they excavated. They found the keller, that's the podium that, of the massive temple there. They uncovered the whole Pepperino wall. They uncovered the etcetera's, the base of the columns, some of the marble that was still on the floor. The humongous columns around the temple were still there. But in doing so, they but, removed all the medieval buildings that had been within that structure. Yeah, well, so there, there was some leftover bits. So there used to be a church in the temple. There's still some remnants of the church. The floor is still there. But a forum, by definition, it has the obvious bits. It's got the big, the humongous temple. It's got the le the spaces for for legal things to happen. It's got a little corner with fun statues in it. It's got all of that. But it, forum, for the most part, is a big open space for people to meet in. Yeah. So what happens to that big open space over time is, in the medieval period, people build buildings in there. People live there. So what you have is you have these layers of previous inhabitations, all these buildings covering this big space. And obviously Mussolini's like, well, I want to see the forum. So they remove all this medieval stuff. And then you're left with what is essentially a big hole because none of the marble is still there. The marble got, got taken away and is used as spolia in churches. So you just have this hole. And that's like, we, we've done it. We've reached Augustan level. This is it. We, we took everything out. This is the forum. And it's a little bit disappointing to look at, to be perfectly honest. But that's yeah, it's this odd void space between the Palatine Hill and the big national monument to the Colosseum. Yeah, well, the, the 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 Roman Forum, like the 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 like the Republican Forum, that's still got a lot of stuff in situ. It's the um, it's the Imperial Forums that become these big empty spaces. Yeah, and you know that's a decision that they've taken, which is that I prefer having this big empty space over leaving the remains of some you know, really, really old medieval buildings. That speaks once again to the incredible political legacy, because that is Mussolini needs to connect his modern Rome and his modern fascist Italy to Rome. So he needs to put it in front of you so we can say this is the empire, this is the heart of the Roman world. Yeah. And if, if you go, well, it's a bit crap, He's dug it up and showed it to you. <laughs> yeah, you can't put the other layers back. They've been demolished. Yeah, because he doesn't uh, want you to know about them either. He wants you to think yeah. of, he doesn't want you to know about the archaic when Rome was sacked or when it was bounced around between various kingdoms. He wants you to know about when it was the center of the world. Yeah. And it's it's 
it's a political decision about history where you are you, you deem some layers some archaeological layers are worthy of display over others and the way you make that decision is based on your current preconceptions you value roman history and roman architecture over other forms of architecture therefore you think it's okay to demolish them yeah um and i think that sort of if we're talking about sources for empire and talking about archaeology that way of thinking is not you know it's not the case anymore so that there has been a real pushback against that in sort of the, the the 1990s so they excavated some more at the forum and they left all the foundations there so it's it's a bit ugly to be honest you got all these sort of brickwork um cellars for from the medieval buildings um but at least there's something to fill the space you know there's something to look at it's not just a void but also uh, they stopped reconstructing a lot of things as well so a lot of the, the the columns that you see that are standing upright in Rome are like that because Mussolini wanted them to, to put the columns back up, basically. Oh God. <laughs> and it means that, you know, they made some mistakes. So there's a, a, there's a Temple of Apollo next to the theatre of uh, Marcellus. And they basically, they, they oriented it so that the corner that survives is the one that faces the road so that when he goes past in his car, he can see it. But actually, if discovered now that actually it should be on the opposite side and it shouldn't shouldn't they put, they put, they put it on the wrong side of the road they put it on the wrong side and um <laughs> you know they they like stack up uh columns and things to make it more look, impressive look look more impressive uh, uh you know they're, they're doing it in a way that generally follows what the building probably would have looked like but they're also doing it to but, support yeah. his ideological standpoint yeah basically Although in the year of our Lord 2023, they have started to do it again. They've um, they they've taken the executive decision recently. Um, especially it's in the sort of the form of Trajan. Yeah. They had a big row of columns uh, that were put up by Mussolini, and this year they've put up some more because they they basically they've said, oh, you know, keeping all these medieval buildings and not touching things is great in principle, but actually we have all these tourists here. And we want to show them what the building looked like, and so they've they've reverted back to basically doing what Mussolini did, um, hmm. which I I think is just really interesting. Just like why do these people take these decisions? You know, why are we keeping certain layers or removing others? Why are we doing? Yeah, why are we doing all this? Empire is a very malleable concept, and the physicality of empire is very malleable, and the, the stuff we have to research to figure out empire is unbelievably malleable too. There's a lot of it, there's not a lot of it. Even when you have a lot of it, it is malleable again because people can get rid of it, it can be reinterpreted, it, how you look at it is right. Because that's that's what that's our job as historians. Nothing is ever really true and nothing is definitive. <laughs> it sounds like you're sort of nodding off to sleep as you said <laughs> that. Like nothing, nothing's true, nothing. nothing. And I was very, very <laughs> drunk. Let's do that. Yeah. Should we talk about our books of the week? Yes, let's do that. Well, my problem is that the book, my book of today, I've just started, well, I haven't even started reading, but I've, I like what I flick through, which is, is The Scramble for China, Foreign Devils in the Xing Empire, 1832 to 1914, which... Foreign Devils in the Xing Empire. What does Dominic Sandbrook say? Comparing the erudite and clear-sighted, thoughtful and sophisticated. Ooh. 
Well, it's got a Daily Mail endorsement, it sounds like. Sunday Times. Oh, wow. Oh, goodness me. It's like the Daily Mail, but posh. <laughs> and what's that about? Um, well, it's about the, the well, what, what they call in China the century of humiliation, which is the, the, the opening of China by force, by trade, by opium, by gunboat. It's probably going to talk about the the uh what do you call it? the heavenly kingdom the taiping rebellion which is an absolute fucking nightmare 20 million people just die but yeah i mean it, i don't know a lot about chinese history and i'd like to learn more and i'm imperial historian at heart so yeah hopefully no, it introduces chinese perspectives and uses chinese sources i should hope so i hope they do and you know what it, it would be a good uh companion to there's a um, there's a new exhibition at the British Museum called China's Hidden Century, which opens uh, later this month, which is about 19th century Qing China. So you know, read the book and then see see the 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 evidence, see the fantastic materials that they have on on offer at that uh, exhibition when it opens. Excellent. And then we can talk about China, which I'd yeah. love to do. And what have you been reading? I have been reading. I haven't I haven't read a lot of it yet. Is um, Black Ghosts of Empire uh, by Chris Manjapra, and um, this is about the way that um, basically persecuted populations were sort of cheated out of compensation, and uh, either through you know, monetary compensation or legal compensation with being given equally legal rights uh, by various colonial governments after the abolition of slavery, essentially. Sort of, it talks a lot about how, um, you know, uh, how abolition in the UK and Britain uh, essentially turned into a big payday for enslavers um, and left enslaved people out in the cold. Uh, despite you know giving them their legal freedom and not even that in some cases yes and not that or or it gets replaced by with some sort of indentured apprenticeship yeah yes Uh, and then obviously in the in the united in the united states you have this sort of unequal you begin with this sort of unequal abolitionist movement where some states they're freed and, and some states they're not and then even after the civil war uh, and sort of a sort of a federal legal um, limit of, of abolition is is placed uh, is in place. You still have these tremendous uh, sort of legal inequalities within states as well. And yeah, and so it, it talks about um, five. It gives five basic examples of um, um, slaves getting screwed over just when they've been seemingly freed, and the fact that many Western countries. Um, love patting themselves on the back about how they abolished slavery that time and normally people don't know uh, all the facts so I, I definitely recommend uh, reading it and um, educating yourself fantastic um, yeah. we need to do the slavery episode it's not going to be a fun one but we need to do it yep Ick nicked and licked and thank you everyone for listening um, we have passed a hundred listens on anchor so please continue to tell your friends share it around please plenty of dog 
I, yeah, they'll they'll know what's going on. They'll know what's going on. They're, they're all, they've all done an undergrad degree. Yeah. Um, thanks again. Uh, rate and review us. iTunes, Spotify. At Podcast Packs on Twitter. Podcast Packs on Twitter. And um, yeah, we'll see everybody next time. See you soon. See you soon.